Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week on episode 26, we're going to talk about how to get a van without building it and what some resources might be and why you might not want to do that. We're also going to talk about screws and things to think about when you're screwing. We'll also do a review of a Stanley Cook kit that I like quite a bit and answer a question about window tinting. Hey, welcome. Thanks very much. Um, I apologize. I'm a little bit hoarse this week because this weekend I spent some significant time in Washington, D.C., uh, which was associated with the podcast episode of last week. But as promised, we are going to march forth here and continue with our normal programming. But uh, I do want to thank everyone who listened to last week and especially thank those who've taken some action recently. So I know that um, this show is basically dedicated to self-build vans. I talk a lot about how to build your own van and what problems you might run into and that type of a thing. But this isn't all about self-building. Some people have more money than time or talent or would just rather work and save up money rather than spend the effort necessary to build your own van. Because, you know, let's face it, building your own van is a labor of love, but it is a labor. It's frustrating at times. You're going to come out of there with cuts and, and burns and covered in chemicals. And it isn't always fun. And I understand people who just don't want to deal with that, and they'd rather just, you know, plop down some money and grab the keys and go. So let's talk about that reality for a bit. So first thing you have to do is understand what a hot market it is right now for camper vans. They're hard to find. Uh, It's not a matter of just going to the lot and picking out one you like. You're going to have to search, and you're probably in for some sticker shock. So let's start at kind of the top and we'll go down. I'm going to give you the shock up front and then try to bring you down maybe to a place that is more comfortable, (laughs) but maybe not. So the first place to look would be the RV community. I mean, as much as the van life community is separate from the RV life community, the vehicles are basically the same. Well, at least in some regards, you've got a van that you've made into a camper or you've got what is called a Class B RV, which is a van made into a camper. The difference being that one is typically self-built and the other is built by a big company, or perhaps built by somebody who specializes in building camper vans. And again, there's a gamut of these things, so I'm going to try to stay on track here. Let's say you wanted to buy a Winnebago van, a, a van converted by Winnebago. First off, you have to know that they tend to run towards the bigger sizes. You're not going to find the smaller size vans built by any of the major outfits. Um, the smallest you're going to find is probably a Promaster, and that's going to go way up to the high-top, long-wheelbase Sprinter van. So you're going to be starting a bit bigger. Pricing, believe it or not, there are Class B vans on the market right now for well over $200,000. Just because the van is smaller doesn't mean it's cheaper than much larger RVs. You can get a Class A for less than a Class B in most cases. To understand the terminology here, a Class A motorhome is a 
typical motorhome. That is a vehicle that kind of looks like a bus, all right? It's a big box on wheels. That's a Class A. And what distinguishes a Class A from a Class B is that a Class A, the entire body is built by the RV manufacturer. It doesn't have any external body parts built by the automotive manufacturer. Now, a Class B is a van that's been turned into an RV. That's pretty easy. And then things get complicated when you get to Class C. A Class C takes a cutaway that is a van that has had the back completely removed. All metal behind the driver's seat is removed and then replaced with a body built by the RV manufacturer. So these are the weird looking ones that you see a van and it has a big overhang over the hood sometimes and then kind of looks like a Class A in the back. That's a Class C. It's just names. It's not like A is better than B or C. They all have different purposes, pros and cons. Oddly, of those, the cheapest is the Class C. It seems strange that if you would take a van and cut everything away behind the driver's seat and then rebuild it, that would end up with something cheaper than just leaving the van intact. But that is actually the case. So, you want to buy a Winnebago. Well, the cheapest um, Winnebago that you're probably going to find, the list price is about $100,000 for a Class B, which is pretty amazing. The cheapest Class C you can get for a Winnebago is about $86,000. And these are new prices, and you can negotiate and all that. But, but consider that. The Winnebago Outlook, which is a Class C based on an Econoline 350 or 450, I can't actually tell from the picture here, but a big full-size van, much, much bigger than a Class B and probably with more amenities in most cases, starts at 86000 And the Class B, their cheap one, which is called the Solis, S-O-L-I-S, which is a low-top van with a pop-up, starts at $102,000. So, Folks, van life ain't cheap. That's what I'm trying to say here. Anyway, you don't have to buy new, and you also don't have to buy from Winnebago or Airstream or Coachman, if they even still exist. I guess they're part of Thor now. You don't don't have to buy that. You can buy in other places. Let's talk a little bit about that. If you're looking for a mini uh, van, um, like, like my Nissan NV200, there are some outfitters that turn these into pretty cool little camper vans. Now, they tend not to be as full-featured as the bigger vans because there simply isn't as much space. You're not going to have a separate bathroom in an NV200, for example. But you can get a very capable vehicle that's great for any kind of adventure you want to take, really, and and gets amazing gas mileage, better than anything else. Uh, Recon is the big one in the U.S. Basically, what Recon does is they take a Nissan NV200 and put in a pop top and a fold out bed and a kitchen and things like that. And they, and they do a bunch of other modifications too. They add electricity and solar as an option and all that. And that ends up costing around $60,000. To put that in perspective, a brand new Nissan NV200 van is $22,000. So most of what you're paying for is the stuff in the back. And that's kind of a fascinating thing. You can actually buy a van do a conversion, and sell it for significantly more than the cost of all your stuff. Because the market, like I said, right now, is hot. So let's say you wanted to buy a van that somebody else had built. Where would you go to find those? Again, they're very hard to find. 
Craigslist, yes, you can go to Craigslist, but you're going to have all the same problems you always have with Craigslist. Is this is a scam? Um, how do I vet this? What happens if something goes wrong? You've got all those problems. You've got Facebook Marketplace, same issues. So um, there's a couple of places that I look at when I'm just trying to figure out how much things cost van life-wise. And uh, the first is RV Trader. RV Trader is a great resource. I, I recommend you check it out just to see how much stuff costs and see what options there are and look at different layouts and floor plans and get ideas. So that's rvtrader.com. So on rvtrader.com right now, if you look, there is a 2012 Dodge Grand Caravan. That's the big Dodge uh, minivan, big mini, I know, with a rooftop tent. This is not a pop-up. This is a tent that's on the roof that folds out and it has a teardrop style kitchen in the back. So basically you'd be cooking outside under the lift gate. It has 212,000 miles, which is a lot of miles for a Dodge Caravan. And that's $8,500. That's a formal rental. That's the cheapest Class B van they have on RV Trader right now. $8,500. Let's say you want to spend a little bit more. Um, you can get a 25-year-old Econoline Class B RV with about 80,000 miles on it for 15000 but that's a 25-year-old vehicle. Or let's say you want to get classic and you want to like do what the Combi Life folks do and get an old Volkswagen low-top T2, 1983, in good condition, someone has renovated this thing, that's $20,000, which is many times what the thing cost when it was new. This is the reality of buying a van, and this is why self-builds are so popular right now. There's another website that you can look at called conversiontrader.com, which focuses specifically on self-built vans. What we talk about here, unfortunately, they don't have as much traction as RV Trader. They're not the big guys, but they're much more targeted. So definitely give them a look, conversiontrader.com. The lowest price van they had on their site when I looked was about $6,500, but that was just a van with a bed in the back. It was very limited conversion. Although that might not be a bad place to start because that gets you functional immediately and you can add on all the other stuff as you go. It's definitely worth considering. To give you an idea about how hot the market is, if you look at RV Trader, there are 16,000 Class A's listed. There are 10,500 Class C's listed and only 3,500 Class B's, and most of those are new. RV Trader is often used by actual existing RV dealers, so you're going to find a whole bunch of new vans listed there at list price, etc., etc. It can be a little confusing. So those are your basic realities of buying a pre-built van or a van that somebody else converted. They're hard to find, and they're expensive, and that's why self-build is so popular. But it is an option, and if I were going to make any recommendation to this, buy a quality van with a low-quality build. That might sound weird, but the reason is this. If your van is in good shape, you can always fix what's in the back. If you don't like the plumbing, rip it out, replace it. Want more electrical stuff? Put it in. Want to change the bed a little harder? But yes, you can do that. If you've got a bad engine or if you've got the van killer called rust, it's much more difficult to deal with stuff. So I hope that just gives you some perspective on why self-build is such the thing to do. And we're going to keep talking about that because 
that's where, honestly, that's where a lot of the fun is as well, even though it can be a pain in the butt sometimes. Okay, Tech Talk. Let's talk about screws, specifically what not to do with screws. When I built my van, and this my van is, is older, uh, it's, well, it's fairly old. It's a six-year-old van, and it has 140,000 miles on it, so, you know, fairly old. It had a whole full life as a maintenance vehicle for Dairy Queens, of all things, and uh, it had a bunch of holes in it already. The, um, the Dairy Queen folks had put in some racks, and they had all kinds of hooks and stuff back there, and some of those they had just put in with zip screws. Zip screws are those um, usually black screws that were built, they're, they're intended for drywall. They've got a very aggressive thread, and they will basically go through anything. But they're not really ideal for sheet metal, uh, which is what you're drilling into in a van. But they tend to get used, and I'll admit I have a bunch of them used in my van. But here's the thing. There are two schools of thought with this. One is that you will screw directly into the frame of the vehicle. The other is that you will frame out the vehicle as you would a house with some kind of wooden framing, and then only screw into that. Screwing into the vehicle is easy. It is fairly secure. The metal of the van is thick enough that it is going to hold things in. But you're creating potential rust problems if you do this. Anytime you break the paint on the inside of your van or on the outside of your van, you're inviting rust because both the inside of your van and the outside of your van are both going to be moist at times. And again, rust is the van killer. So if you do use a screw that goes through the body of your van, make sure you paint the hole. What I highly recommend is that you, well, I, all right, I have, to, I have to confess here. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> because my van breaks about all the rules I'm about to tell you. If you're going to use a self-tapping screw, which is, this is a screw that has a little drill bit on the end. They're very simple to use. They, the, the screw drills its own hole and then screws into it. If you're going to use those, screw it in, unscrew it, spray paint the hole, or at least cover, cover it with something. It could be uh, a bit of uh, tar, a bit of wax, a bit of uh, flex seal, something like that. Let it dry a bit and then put the screw back in. It's not really the best practice because self, self-tapping screws get a little bit looser every time you take them in and out. A better thing to do is to drill holes with a, with a drill bit that is smaller than the gauge of the screw you're going to use, saying you're using a sheet metal screw, and also paint that hole. A lot of people these days are recommending rivnuts. Rivnuts are a combination of rivets and nuts. That's where the name comes from. And you need a special tool to use them. And, but what they do is they create a very secure mounting point that's easy for the screw to come in and out of without damaging the sheet metal. So if you were ever going to put something in the van that you're going to be screwing it and unscrewing it, I think rivnuts are probably the way to go. A lot of the fancier builds, the entire van is done with rivnuts. But it's expensive and a bit time-consuming. So if you're doing kind of a a lower-end build like mine is, it may not be the way to go. One special note with screws. If you're going to screw through the floor of your van, you are completely opening up your van to rust problems. Water is going to spray up, and where that screw comes out of the van, you have made a little gap in the the waterproofing or the undercoat, whatever the heck your van has. (laughs) 
make sure that if you screw through the bottom of your van, you're going to crawl under there and spray paint those screws or flex seal them or put silicone on them or something like that to keep the water out of there. You're not going to have problems immediately. It's not like you're going to create a leak, but eventually that screw is going to rust and the metal around the hole is going to rust and whatever you have attached with that screw is going to rip right out of your van and it's going to be a bad scene. In some cases, you may want to consider stainless steel screws. If you have screws on the outside of your van, such uh, maybe they're holding down the solar panels or something like that, consider getting stainless steel screws. These just basically are screws that don't rust. They're a lot more expensive, but we're talking about screws here. So if a screw costs 90 cents versus 30 cents and you need 10 of them, you're talking about six bucks. It's not the end of the world and it's well worth it if you ever need to work on these screws or you don't want rusty water stains dripping down the side of your van. So definitely consider that. If you have the option of doing a nut and bolt versus a screw, and we have to, I know terminology is tricky, screws don't have nuts. I know that doesn't make sense, but they don't. Screws technically do not have nuts. Screws go straight into wood or metal with no nut. A bolt has a nut. If you can use a nut and bolt rather than a screw, meaning you have access to both sides of it, a nut and bolt is almost always a better solution because they can go in and out as many times as you want without damaging anything. They're easier to tighten and you kind of can't over tighten them. That's one of the biggest risks with screws, with say sheet metal screws, is that you over tighten them. You drill it in and then you go just a little bit too far and the screw ruins the hole and makes it bigger and then the screw is basically worthless. And the only way to fix that is to use a bigger screw. The easiest way to prevent over-tightening screws is to use the clutch on your drill gun. If you didn't get the absolute cheapest battery-powered drill, you'll notice there are numbers around the chuck. The chuck is the part that tightens around the bit. The bit is the part you put on the screw or where the drill bit would go in. It's called a bit. It goes in the chuck. Around the chuck are these numbers. If you turn the chuck, you'll hear click, 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 click. What you're doing is adjusting the clutch. And that means that once the drill encounters enough resistance, it will stop trying to screw in and just click. The clutch will slip, basically. You can adjust that until you get to the right point where it's going to make it tight but not so tight. And one trick is make it so that the clutch trips really early so there's no chance that you're going to strip it out and then hand tighten it because you're going to be able to feel a lot better with your hand than you are with the drill. But it is absolutely possible to strip a screw using a screwdriver. So there's basically, that's, that's some basic information about screws. Again, you could spend hours and hours talking about the theory of screws and Archimedes and the 800,000 different types of screws, why you should use a Robert's head rather than a Phillips head. Maybe we'll save that for another episode. But for now, I just want you to think about what you're doing when you're screwing something into your van. Tales from the road. So I just took a whirlwind trip to Washington, D.C. I hopped in the van, only set it up in a haphazard way, and just whoosh, headed out. I had very limited amount of time. I was going from Chicago to Washington, D.C. 
And my plan was that Thursday night, I would drive as far as I could, spend the night in a rest area, and then finish my drive to where I had uh, pre-planned a parking spot in Roslyn, which is just over the bridge from D.C. It's it's a little weird out there, folks. If uh, you haven't been on the road in a while, things are strange. Uh, COVID has really made traveling a little bit more creepy and a little bit less fun, especially if you're on the interstates, which basically on this trip, that's all I was. This wasn't really a tourism trip. When you go to an interstate rest area now, you're going to notice a few things. One is that there are fewer people because nothing's open in there. Those big service plazas that you are familiar with, they tend to be more on the East Coast where you'll go in and there's a big food court and there's a store and sometimes a gift shop and an arcade and all this stuff. Most of that is closed. What I found was that the stores, like the 7-Eleven kind of stores, are open, and maybe one of the fast food places is open. But even that's weird. It takes a long time to get your food. The menu items are limited. You have to line up in a strange way. And they even turn the music off for some reason. I mean, okay, there's COVID, but why is the music off? Not that I really care. It's just not fun. It's not pleasant. You don't want to stop there. Um, At least I didn't. I found that um, people weren't wearing masks at all. Um, Maybe half of the people that were actually working with the food wearing masks, and hardly any of the customers were. I was, but um, I just felt really... It just did not feel cool. It did not. Now, as for spending the night... I had no problems at all. I just parked at the edge of the rest area. I actually spent the night on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border in Ohio on the turnpike, and it was fine. I just slept, and that was it. But I have to let you know, if you haven't um, been out on the road in the east lately, the tolls are getting to be a little onerous. From Chicago to D.C., the tolls were $51. That's more than the gas. I spent more on tolls than I spent on gas, and I don't think I've ever been able to say that before. Once I got to Roslyn, everything was fine. I found a nice place to park, a little secret place where a bunch of vans park, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because I don't want it getting overrun and being chased off. But these places you can find if you're familiar with an area. Had no problems there. Um, My uh, logic was that if there was any trouble going on in D.C., it probably wouldn't cross the bridges. And as it was, there was no trouble. In fact, where I was in D.C. with 100,000 of my closest friends, everybody was wearing masks, unlike in the service areas. Uh, The way back, I just did it all in one go. I I drove from Washington, D.C. to Chicago without stopping except for gas. And it took maybe um, 10 and a half hours, maybe 11, and everything was fine. There's fewer cars on the road, less traffic. So in that regard, COVID is good. Um, You'll encounter less traffic out there. You will still encounter a lot of road construction, though. So even though the speed limit might be 70, you might be in a 45-mile-an-hour zone for a long time. That's my tale. Not, not, no big lesson to learn from this other than things are a little different now. If you haven't gone out there, just uh, be prepared that it's not the same world anymore. I don't know if we're ever going to get back to the way it was. So here's a product review of something I use all the time. It's one of these essential things in my van. It is the Stanley Adventure Prep Plus Cook Set. Or, I don't know if it's Prep Plus or Prep, I don't know. Anyway, Stanley Adventure Cook Set. Let's just call it that. 
this is the perfect little container of cooking utensils for one person or two people actually but i think it's great for just one because i'm usually out there by myself what this thing is is it's a stainless steel pot that's one and a half quarts and then inside that are two plastic bowls each of the bowls has a lid that can be a plate or a cutting board and inside there there are two utensils one is a spatula and the other is a kind of a clever ladle that is also a bit of a strainer too and then there are two handles that you can use one handle on each of those or put the handles together and have one really long thing like if you were maybe using a fire and you wanted a longer thing and then there's a lid now the nice thing about this is all this stuff packs in the pot and it's just tiny little thing it takes up very little space and yet you can make a lot of stuff with this it's just small quantities it has to fit in one and a half quarts it is exactly the perfect size for one of those butane stoves so just if when you're looking at stuff out there i have found that this one kit is always enough for me it does every single thing i need for cooking with one exception and that is boiling water for say coffee i mean it will do that but i also have a different thing that i use for that that i think is easier so except for that one thing this is really all you need it costs about 40 bucks which might seem expensive but when you compare it to other hiking gear and that's kind of where this falls in it's actually not that bad so I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, give it a thought. This one kit might be all you need. It's the Stanley Adventure Cook Set, the 1.58 quarts. Got an email from Tom. Thank you, Tom, for the email about window tinting. So here's Tom's question. I have a Volkswagen bus, 75T2, and I'd like to tint the far back side windows, sort of like the two-way mirror idea. Is that legal? Well, Tom, is an interesting question. So a T2 is like, picture a Volkswagen van from the 70s or 80s. Boom, there, it's a T2. The original Combi Life Caputo was a T2, I believe. Anyway, standard van. He's asking if to do the side windows in the back, not the side windows in the front, and not the very back window. So is it legal to make it a mirror finish? And the answer is... Maybe? And here's the problem. This... Window tint is controlled by so many jurisdictions that there's no one answer. So here's what I have learned just doing research about window tinting. And again, this is not official. You are going to have to find out where you live, what's legal. Number one, you may not tint your front windshield. That's, I've not found anywhere where that's legal. There are some locales that let you tint a portion of the top of your front windshield, like maybe the eight inches or so. And you can make that very dark, but in general, you can't tint your front windows. The side windows, it is illegal to tint at all in some places, and in other places, you can tint up to a certain percentage. Limo tint, as they call it, is almost completely black. Mirror tint, which is what Tom's asking about, is where it looks like a mirror from the outside. Both of those are almost always illegal for your front side windows. And the reason is pretty simple. You actually get information from drivers while you're driving, such as where they're going to turn and if they see you or not. So it is valuable for you as a driver to be able to actually see other drivers and too dark of a tint can prevent that. Now the side windows in the back, in most cases, and this is good news for Tom, 
you're going to be okay doing that because those windows are not actually essential. Think about it. Most vans or many vans, especially cargo vans, don't have any windows back there. And clearly that's legal. So could you take those windows out completely? Yes, you can do that. It's going to be rare that you're going to find a law against tinting those windows as dark or as mirrored as you want, except in cases where the locales have poorly written laws and they just write one blanket law without considering all the implications. But here's a really weird question about this. Let's say you live in New York State and you build your van and you tint the windows according to the guidelines of New York State and whatever county you're in and whatever town you're in. And then you drive to Colorado. Are you legal in Colorado? Because they may have different standards for these things. South, southern states and western states allow more tint in general because they know that the sun is a problem. And the answer is, typically, you have 30 days in any state before you have to follow their rules about your car. And that usually means before you have to register it in that state. But again, this is all kind of a gray area. So, you will find a disclaimer on most window tint company sites that say, hey, we're going to do whatever you want, but we're not going to be responsible for following the laws. And that's kind of the game it is right now. So, my advice to you, if you're going to tint your windows, is be practical. I think what Tom is suggesting is completely fine. Yes, it can be helpful to look out those back windows, but putting on that mirror tint isn't going to be a problem. Nobody needs to look in those windows, ever. Front windshield, do not mess with it. And side front windows, up where you and the passenger are sitting, if you're going to tint those, keep the percentage pretty low so that people can see you and know what to do. Well, thank you for listening to this episode 26 and putting up with my hoarse voice and somewhat disjointed patter this week. I do absolutely appreciate everyone listening. Uh, music again is by Simon Wag, a.k.a. Sir Mooge. And I have to give a special shout out to Jackie and Shauna, who spent the weekend with me making sure I stayed safe, especially that I drank enough water. Till next week, remember, being kind is more important than being smart. Take care.